with me. Come Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do that wonder among us, that miracle that you do when you take human speech and you infuse it with your power and anointing and it becomes it becomes the spoken preach word of God. Lord, this is not something that anyone can do in their flesh. It's not something anyone is worthy to do. We come to you. We all cry out to you, Lord, come have mercy on the preacher of the word that these words might be anointed and touched and sent from you and have mercy on your congregation and give us hearts that are open to receive the teaching of the scriptures. And we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. We are now in what I like to refer to as deep Lent. We're in deep Lent, y'all. And uh, some of us have taken, a lot of people this Lent have taken up a spiritual discipline called virus. Uh, So... uh, Our hearts and prayers and thoughts go out. Um, uh, Bishop Quigg may never come back to Christ Church. Uh, He he got sick and went home and stayed in the bed for three days, I think. But uh, we're praying for all those folks. But as a reminder, though, seriously, Lent is a season of the Christian year in which we prepare for the celebration of Christ's resurrection on Easter. And we do it by taking stock of our walk with the Lord. We begin Lent with the, with the term, uh, remember that you are dust and to dust you will return. So we face our mortality and we're made aware that this life does uh, have a terminus for us right now. And we need to, be, meet, need to be prepared to meet Christ at his coming at the end of our life, into our lives or when he comes again in glory, we certainly need to be ready for his resurrection celebration. And so this is a time to renew our posture of repentance for sin and our embrace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do this through several biblical spiritual disciplines like prayer and fasting and almsgiving, among other things. So those, that's how we're preparing. And a part of what comes up in Lent during the readings of the scriptures on Sunday is we get a lot of, of texts, particularly from the epistle lessons, on, uh, on the Christian ethic. The Christian ethic. There is a way of life if we are following Christ. So, yes, we know that we're all saved by grace and we're kept by God's grace. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we, we just heard from Ephesians. It's in that book where we have the, perhaps the clearest statement of our salvation by grace alone. But the Bible and today's passage from Ephesians is clear that the person who has genuinely been transformed by Jesus Christ demonstrate this, demonstrates this in how we live out our Christian lives. It's not just something we feel in our hearts or think in our heads is expressed in our lives, how we live our lives. And that's what we hear about in Paul's letter to the Ephesians today. Here's the big idea for the Christian way of life. This is the big idea for the Christian ethic. And Paul states it clearly at the beginning of this passage. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So the key to the Christian way of life is to be an imitator of God. And then Paul says in order to imitate God, he points to Jesus as the model that we imitate. Imitate God, imitate Jesus. In other words, imitate God, and God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. So the goal of the Christian life, the goal of being a disciple, is to be made like 
Christ. Now, some of us would just say, well, that's obvious. We all know that. But this is the key to the Christian ethic. Let me give you some verses from other places around the New Testament. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined, listen, to be conformed to the image of his son, being made like Christ, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. 1 John, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Paul again in 2 Corinthians. Listen to this passage. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, beholding the glory of the Lord. And see how seeing him makes us like he is. John expresses that. We will we'll be like him because we'll see him. And it comes up again in Paul's writing here. With unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being, listen, transformed into the same image that we behold in Christ. Transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And finally, in Second uh, Peter, another key verse, 2 Peter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted us to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Here's the key phrase, listen. So that through them... You may become partakers of the divine nature. God is making us by grace what he is in his essence. God is making us by grace what he is in his essence. In his essence. So in the early church, a very popular illustration of being made like Christ, of becoming like God through grace, is that of iron being placed in a fire. So if I take an iron poker, and by the way, I actually did this when I was a kid, got in trouble for it. Uh, take that iron poker and stick it in the fire in the fireplace. Um, liable to catch the house on fire like that. But you leave it in there. You leave that poker in there and it begins to take on the attributes. Iron, which does not stop being iron, it's still an iron poker. But it begins to take on the attributes of the fire. So that it becomes bright and it glows like fire. It, it, it then uh, begins to exude heat. It becomes hot itself. And so you take it out and it's radiating heat. And that poker is literally so hot that if you touch something with it, like your couch in your living room where the fireplace is, it will burst into flames. <laughs> So that's what actually God is doing to us as imitators of Christ. By participating in the life of Christ, by, by following Christ closely and attending to the means of grace, like Bible reading and prayer and giving and receiving the Lord's Supper, we begin to take on the attributes of Christ. We begin to be, just like that iron poker, begins to look like fire. We begin to look more and more like Jesus. And that is the goal of the Christian life. We actually have a word for this because we have to have a special super secret decoder ring word for everything as Christians. And it's called theosis. It's being made by grace what God is by nature.
Okay, so what does this exactly look like then? What does this imitation look like? Well, it looks like this. Let me, let me back up a second and say for most people, love, if we talk about love, love is a concept or a feeling or a philosophy. But according to the witness of Scripture, for us, love is not an abstract idea. It is a person. Love is a person. We are the ones who say that God is love. The nature and character of Jesus Christ define love for us. And the love we know in Jesus is one that always seeks the good of the beloved. When that good, even when that good, the beloved's good is at the, at the expense of the lover's own desires, comforts, appetites, or needs. Love does not seek its own happiness, but the happiness of the beloved. So when we imitate Christ, Paul says, and walk, how do you do that? Walk in love and walk in love as, as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then we have, again, in 1 John, we have this descriptor. We actually have a, a verse that harmonizes with that passage I just quoted from Ephesians, 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So what does love look like? Love, the kind of love we imitate in Christ, is self giving, self-offering, self-sacrificing love. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Four Loves, he says this, God, listen, God who needs nothing loves into existence wholly superfluous creatures. It's C.S. Lewis, you got to listen to the big words. So God who needs nothing, we call that the aseity of God. God who needs nothing loves into existence wholly superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. He creates the universe already foreseeing the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross. The flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the missile nerves, and the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops, the repeated torture of back and arms as it is time after time for breath's sake hitched up. Herein is love. Listen, this is the diagram of love himself. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. So walk in love. That's how we imitate Christ. That's the Christian ethic. But then Paul goes on to give us what, and, and this is a very typical uh, rhetorical um, usage in, uh, Paul uses it very frequently, but it's, it's typical of rhetoric of that day and age in the apostolic period, where you, uh, when, when you are describing an ethic, you, you lift up virtues to be, uh, uh, to be striven for, and you lift up their opposites to say, avoid these things. So do this, don't do that. Yeah, okay, so Paul said, love this. Oh, but don't do that. And here's the, here's the don't do that part. Here is the op opposite of walking in love. This is the opposite of imitating God. Verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness. Covetousness there is, uh, the Greek word is insatiable desire. Must not even be named among you. Must not even be named among you. As is proper among saints. For you may be sure of this that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure 
or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So Paul lifts up these things as being opposite, contrary to the love of God. Sexual immorality. Well, what is sexual immorality? Well, we, we, don't, have to, we don't have to go through a list, and I don't want to anyway. I don't even think about it. Uh, but here, here it is. We have, yes, and yes, we do have to explain this now because evidently it confuses some people. Um, oh my gosh, if I hear the term progressive evangelical one more time, I might just lose it. So let me explain this. Jesus Christ himself defined the only appropriate sphere for the expression of the gift of human sexuality, and that is in the lifelong one-time covenant union between a man and a woman in marriage. That is the norm, and anything that deviates from that is what we would call sexual immorality. So sexual immorality or sexual impurity and insatiable desire are the opposite of walking in love. As a matter of fact, because those things ultimately are all, listen, all self-directed. Love that we see in Christ is self-giving. But these things, Paul describes, are self-directed. In fact, these things, uh, because those who practice them desire them more than God, Paul says, this is a form of idolatry. To desire this above following God means I have placed this as the supreme deity of my life. An idol is anything that I am more devoted to than God. Uh, sometimes I say it like this. Now, I know that people have to travel, and I know people, have, uh, people obviously get sick. But usually you know what your idol is, but whatever it takes to keep you from going to church on a Sunday morning, that's probably your idol. Idol worshipers have no place in God's kingdom. Why is that? Because they are committed to a different God. In other words, Paul says such a person has no place in the kingdom of God. Well, why not? Because they've already said, I don't want to be in that kingdom. I have an idol. I'm going to be in that idol's kingdom. So it just makes sense. Now, all of us are sexually broken because of the fall, and we are all prone to stumble in the area of sexuality. We just do it in different ways. Some of us are very creative. Others of us are fairly pedestrian, but we all mess it up. And thanks be to God, if this happens and we repent and seek his forgiveness, God graciously and mercifully restores us. However, listen, if we are living in unrepentant, sexual immorality, self-justifying sexual immorality, then Paul is saying you are not a follower of Jesus Christ. And just saying you're progressive doesn't clear it up. Now, we need to talk about this. We need to talk about this, unfortunately, because Christians are routinely accused of being obsessed with sexual sin. We hear it all the time. Here's the typical scenario is this is um, a prominent Christian is on CNN, and the very first thing out of the interrogator's mouth is, why do you think uh, this about sexual practices? And then they give an explanation, and then they say, and why are you so obsessed with this? We didn't bring it up. You asked me the question. And it goes along the lines, why don't you care more about hunger or injustice? And we definitely care about those things. 
And then they say, why are you always yammering away about sex? Well, that may actually be accurate, uh, accurate critique in some areas. I don't think so much, but perhaps there is a place where that critique needs to be made. But here is what is actually going on. Listen, we are not the ones driving the conversation about sex in our culture. On this point, Yuval Levin writes, this, he writes this, listen, religious traditionalists today can seem obsessed with sex for the same reason that someone just poked in the eye can't seem to change the subject. They are being attacked on a particular front and are struggling to defend themselves. They are not the ones who made sexuality the center of the culture wars. Social progressives have, for the most part, picked these fights because orthodox views about sexual morality, which insist on fundamental limits uh, to the scope of personal choice, strike them as uniquely oppressive and backward, and they cannot abide their persistence. We're not the ones bringing it up. Here's why Orthodox Christians governed by Scripture cannot condone sexual immorality, the sexual innovations of the sexual revolution. It has to do with this. Listen. It has to do with the fact that we believe that the human body is, the, is one of the major ways, in fact, it is the primary way through which we encounter the grace of God. It is the primary means, it is the medium through which God's grace enters the Christian life on a regular and ordinary basis. Oh, I thought it was just sitting around thinking spiritual thoughts. No, Jesus doesn't think that. That's why he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now we do that and it does have a spiritual impact, but you can't do it without eating the bread and drinking the wine. That's why we, when we baptize people, we actually stick them in real water. Not metaphorical water at all. It's like real H2O. Seriously. And we can only do that because we have bodies. We see the human body as sacred and essential to being a human person. The Christian faith has always taught that the body is good and it is eternally significant. And to the contrary, secularists have a much lower view of the worth of the body. So much so that the grand dream of some of the folks in Silicon Valley is transhumanism. How can we transcend this meat sack and upload our consciousness into a new cybernetic reality? And if you or I have ever said that, listen, if you've ever said this, and I was talking to somebody just this past week, um, well, you know, the body isn't the real you. Well, what is it then? Well, you know, the, your body is not the real you. That is it's just a prison house for the soul. Well, brothers and sisters, that is not biblical Christianity. I actually remember uh, very clearly, and I'm, I'm not, I don't want to knock on uh, Billy Graham, uh, he, but I remember one time uh, he was preaching. I was listening to this sermon. He said, you know, uh, you know your, your body, that's how if Billy Graham talks. You're going to leave that behind one day. The real you, the spirit needs to be born again. That's pretty good. Pretty close, don't you think? Um, and, and I, I mean, I, in one sense, I understand what he was talking about. But what he was talking, what he actually said was Gnostic heresy. So if we think your body, if you think your body is not the real you, that it's just a meat sack, a husk to be left behind, that is not what the scriptures teach and it's not what the church has ever taught. People's attitudes about the goodness and importance of the body are often revealed and what they think you should do to dead bodies. 
So listen, so talking to my friend this past week, you know, just put me out and let the buzzards eat me. I don't care. But you see, we don't look at it that way. We see the body as being holy and sacred and of eternal significance. Yes, we know that we decompose after a while. But the, the good news in the scripture it, uh, teaches us that that's not the ultimate state for the human being. The body is good and holy and amazing. Let me, let me bring this in because God himself put on a very real physical human body when he came to us in Jesus Christ. And God in Christ literally physically rose from the dead in that glorified human body and has ascended into heaven with that body. And he reigns over the universe right now and, uh, and for all eternity in that human body. We believe that God intentionally created as spiritual, physical totalities to be human is to have a body. And that is why the biblical doctrine of the physical resurrection of Christ and the physical resurrection of his followers is a core non-negotiable teaching. One day, even after your body in this, after they've laid you to rest and you have decomposed, God is going to reassemble a glorified body that is in continuity with the body you possess right now. So... Yes, we are obsessed with the human body because everything we do in it, in this body, directly relates to God and has eternal significance, including how we use the gift of human sexuality. That's why this matters to us. It is not adiaphora. It's not just inconsequential. And to misuse the body, Paul says, is to invite the judgment of God because it misuses our humanity. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, in the body, whether good or evil. Now, I've harped on this today because Paul says that there are people inside the church who are seeking to deceive you with empty words. What I've just spoken is not popular in this culture, and it's not popular in many churches. Do not be deceived by those who are speaking those empty words. Then Paul gives us another emphasis of this Christian ethics. Walk in the light. Paul says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Light is revealing. To be in the light is to be revealed, to be seen. It is in the light that we see what is the good and the right and the true and the beautiful. And light has a disinfecting and cleansing property. Certainly, spiritual light does. When we hold things in, in darkness, when we cling to the darkness, when we seek to avoid having our, our sin exposed, it has power to control us. If we hide our sin, and that's why we pray that prayer at the beginning of the surface. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from him, whom no secrets are hid. We are saying, God, shine the light. Uh, your light is on me now. Shine that light and disinfect me and take out those things that hold me prisoner in the dark. Darkness is to hide and to turn away from God. It is to self-justify. 
In fact, it seems that oftentimes when we choose to walk in darkness, self-justification becomes an all-consuming project in our lives. And for many people, social media is their daily apologetic for why they're going to live the way they're living. This is my my self-justification medium is social media. And ultimately, the darkness makes many promises, but it can never fulfill them. This is why, and here's the practical point, we all need accountability and we all need the discipline of the church. Accountability and the discipline of the church are perhaps the most effective means of shining the light on the dark places of our lives. So let me ask you this. Do you have an accountability partner? I do. I've had the same accountability partner for 30 years. He knows me like I don't want you to talk to him. That's, that's how much he knows me. He knows me very, very well. He always calls during the Council of Advice meetings. That's Greg Jinks. I don't, I don't know if he's got it on his schedule like I do or something, but he always calls, and we have to let him talk to the Council of Advice. Uh, that's, that's his gig. I don't know what that's all about. But he really does know me inside and out. Do you have somebody like that in your life? If you don't, you need to have that. Now, historically, the Anglican Church, along with the other churches of the Reformation, have taught, and we see this in the book of homilies, in the book, uh, in the uh, homily, a homily concerning the coming down of the Holy Ghost, probably written by the good bishop John Jewell. And in that homily, it says this, The true church hath always three notes or marks whereby it is known pure and sound doctrine the scriptures minister uh, the sacraments ministered according to Christ's holy institution and the right use of ecclesiastical discipline this description of the church is agreeable both to the scriptures of god and also to the doctrine of the ancient fathers so that none may justly find fault therewith the marks of the church are the faithful preaching of the word of god the faithful administration of the sacraments, and the faithful exercise of the discipline of the church. And we need that to help us walk in the light. Coming weekly to Holy Communion constantly challenges us to bring ourselves into the light of Christ. We are always reminded how much we need to have our hearts exposed before the Lord as we come to this holy meal. In fact, in the Book of Common Prayer, there is something called the exhortation. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. It's rather, rather lengthy. But I want to close with this. Dearly beloved in the Lord, if you intend to come to the Holy Communion of the body and blood of our Savior Jesus Christ, you must consider how St. Paul in his letter to the Corinthians exhorts us all diligently to examine ourselves, walk in light, before we presume to eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For as the benefit is great, if we receive that holy sacrament with a truly penitent heart and lively faith. Remember, we always say everyone who comes, baptized Christians who come with faith and repentance, it comes from here. A truly penitent heart and lively faith, spiritually eating the flesh of Christ and drinking his blood so that we might be made one with Christ and he with us. So also is the danger great if we receive the same unworthily, for then we become guilty of profaning the body and blood of our sa- Christ our Savior, and we eat and drink to our own condemnation. Therefore, judge yourself, lest ye be judged by the Lord." 
First, examine your life by the rule of God's commandments. Wherever you have offended, either by thought, word, or deed, there confess your sins to Almighty God. What do we do every Sunday before we come to Holy Communion? We get on our knees and we make our confession to God. Confess your God, to God the things you've done in thought, word, and deed. With the full intention to amend your life... Be ready to make restitution for all injuries and wrongs done by you to others, and also be ready to forgive others who have offended you. For otherwise, if you unworthily receive Holy Communion, you will increase your own condemnation. Therefore, repent of your sins, or else do not come to God's holy table. And then it says this, If you have come here today with a troubled conscience, and you need help and counsel, come to me, or to some other priest, and confess your sins, that you may receive godly counsel, direction, and absolution. To do so will both satisfy your conscience and remove any scruples or doubt. So during this Lent, brothers and sisters, I want to invite you to schedule time, particularly Father Keith and Father David George have offered to do this, and I will do it too if you need me to do it. Schedule, if you would like to, I want to encourage you, if you need to bring something into the light to be freed from the darkness, schedule time with one of the priests at this church, Keith or me or David, who would love to hear your confession, offer you biblical counsel, and speak God's word of forgiveness into your life. Let us help you come into the light. And let us help you walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.